Hello, friend. Greg, uh, Greg Kogel here, Stan DeRisa. Sorry about that. I hate it having a, a bad launch and a bad ending. So I'm going to start over. Hello, friends. Greg Kogel here. Glad you've joined me. And uh, that was better, wasn't it? And this is one of those open mic call days that I'm uh, doing off schedule, so you can't call in today to chat with me. But you can call in to the open mic number, 857-342-5787, to leave your question and 24-7, anytime you want, and it'll make the list. Or you could just go to homepage, str.org, and podcasts, and then live podcasts, and do the same there. Just follow the prompts. Occasionally, I get a letter that I think is is uh, really um, meaningful and uh, instructive. And I want to read one of those letters to you, uh, partly for the instructive element, and also because of a pushback this gentleman is experiencing in an otherwise fine church and a couple of questions that follow from it. And so um, I, 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 I'm actually was really taken with the letter because it's a, a faithful Christian brother who's a, um, a physician in an academic hospital, and I'm not going to get any other details than that, but he's a professional person, I guess is the point. And um, and he's experiencing some challenges in his church. And um, now the church itself is solid, and this is true with a lot of churches. You have a, a solid church, but you have little knots of people, little groups, fellowship, studies, whatever, where individuals are expressing uh, convictions that are inconsistent with biblical truth, and seriously so. Uh, incidentally, I recently interviewed um, David Limbaugh on his book, The Resurrection, Resurrected Christ, or something, the one that deals with the um, the prison epistles and the three pastoral epistles. And one thing that stood out for me as I read the book, so I'm going through all of these epistles and he's doing commentary on them, because I read the book in three days, it just jumped out to me the importance of sound doctrine and the exhortation that Paul made to both Titus and Timothy and in other circumstances as well in the prison epistles to be sure to enforce sound doctrine. He tells Titus, some of these people have to be silenced. And so it's surprising to me that in churches that are otherwise sound, you have these groups of people that have false views scripturally, and um, and, I, and maybe maybe the leadership doesn't know about them. I don't know. I'm not speaking so much of this circumstance, but in other circumstances, how could they not know about some of this stuff? And why don't they say, okay, you stop this. Here's the truth about the matter from the Scripture, this kind of stuff that you're promoting is not going to happen in this group, in this church. Okay? Gentle but firm leadership. And if people don't want to abide by that, that's fine. They just can go somewhere else that are more sympathetic to their views. People have freedom of conscience in that regard, but it is the responsibility of leadership of churches to enforce sound doctrine. No, maybe that sounds like strong words, but read First Timothy, read Titus. 
see what Paul says in those books about about uh, enforcing sound doctrine, about, pardon the word, policing this kind of thing, because that's just what needs to be done, or else bad things happen to the church. Anyway, the challenges he said I'm facing are coming from within the church, and um, when they when this group uh, was go, group of men was going through some passages, um, he basically got um, th- this particular um, pushback. Okay, uh, that some members of the group said they believe every word that Jesus said, and that's critical to becoming a Christian. But and so though no argument with the Gospels. What about Paul? Paul is just some guy. Now, let me just sort of pause for a moment there. Um, well, I, I guess I could go on. Uh, Jesus didn't write anything. Everything that we have a record of that Jesus said were written by those who were his fo- followers, just making that observation. So this is why if you're going with a red-letter Bible, I can believe with Jesus, but I don't know about these other guys. Well, it was these other guys that told us what Jesus said. Anyway, just saying. Paul was just some guy, self-proclaimed apostle, stuck in the culture of his time. Okay, when I read that, I realized, oh, I know what's coming. There are things that Paul taught about that are not cool with the culture we're in right now, and therefore, maybe we have reason to—who's this guy Paul, anyway? Now, it is interesting that Paul had this challenge even in his own lifetime, and in a number of places— Corinthians, for example, I think probably 2 Corinthians, he's defending his apostleship. Okay, but I'll I'll go on. It turns out that, uh, according to this, and you know where, where this is going probably, Paul is the only one who condemns homosexuality. Jesus never mentions it. Okay, so the word wasn't even in the Bible till 67. Now, these are this is the challenge that this sweet letter writer is facing in his men's Bible study group, okay? Um, It mostly applied to cult prostitutes in pagan temples. The prohibitions in Leviticus are there, but that is condemning pederastry, and besides, we don't keep most of the Levitical law today, like eating shrimp. Um, And then this person who raised the issue has actually been a year in seminary, they know something about the Bible, and they've read the scholarship, and they think scholars agree with his view, okay, that uh, what were seen to be limited prohibitions on homosexuality in the past, for the reasons that, the reasons that were explained, uh, don't apply today, okay? Now, um, the, the writer here mentions that um, he's read you know, our responses, particularly Alan Schleeman's, who responds to all of these things. But uh, nevertheless, um, uh, he's still got to deal with these people in his church group, okay? And uh, there's, on a more personal note, he says, I, 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 he, he's actually read a lot of scholarship on the issue because he has struggled with same-sex attraction. Now, he says, I'm not a gay hater, 
It's been a very difficult issue for me in my entire life, but because of shame and social strictures, and I would like to say obedience to Christ, but I know myself, so there's a combination of things going on here. Notice this. Here is a Christian who is faithful to Scripture, understands what Scripture teaches on this in spite of his own feelings and inclinations, and out of his respect for Scripture, and because there are social pressures that help along doing what is right, he has continued to live a life that is proper and um, celibate, even though he struggled for years. Okay? He said, I've made peace with the fact that Jesus says we are to deny ourselves and follow or obey him. I think all Christians have inclinations to which they must say no. Some are compulsive and strong, but sin is sin. This is what he writes. I suspect there are many like me that over the centuries in the past, there have been many as well. But today, people are being told to be true to themselves. I am convinced that by obeying God in this, I have been blessed and received joy in my life. Uh, And I'm sure that going with the baser desires would have made me miserable. Okay, so this is interesting, and the the personal item I want you to get, we'll get back to the challenges in a moment, but here's a guy, and, and I hope that this encourages you. Here's a guy who's willing to say, yeah, I struggle, but I am committed to doing what's right, and I'm kind of thankful that there has been in the past cultural pressures that have kept me on the right road. That's a good thing. Those pressures aren't here anymore. So now you just have, the, in a sense, the naked desire all by itself to do what God wants. And by the way, this is why God wants us in community. Because if all we have is ourselves and the command of God, it's a lot harder to do what's right, even if we love Christ, if nobody's looking over our shoulder in an appropriate way. Just saying, again. So um, the commitment to do it right, even even if it's difficult, he's got his unique temptations. We all have our unique temptations. We can all say no to those temptations, hopefully have the help of our communities around us to say no and do what's right, because that honors God and, frankly, will be less miserable in the future if we do what God says. Good lesson there. But now back to the issues. This individual is pushing back on Paul and Paul's authority and the verses that are against homosexuality in both Leviticus and in the New Testament. New Testament coming from Paul. Jesus never mentioned it. That's the argument. And the word homosexuality was not even invented until the 20th century. Okay, it was not even in the Bible until 1967. Actually, that's not true. Uh, the claim is that it entered in the 20s, whatever, but it's, it's, it turns out to be irrelevant. So let me deal with a couple of these issues. Okay, whether or not the term homosexuality appears in the Bible is irrelevant. The term that they are, that they are pushing back on is 1 Corinthians 6, and it's our sinicoites. So what if we didn't even put the word homosexuality in there, and we just put the word our in there? 
We just transliterate it like we do baptism from baptizo or uh, uh, or something like that. You know, we just kind of take the Greek word and make it a little English sign. So we just have our synecoites, and then somebody's going to say, what does that mean? What is Paul talking about there when he says arsenicoites? Well, he's talking about men betting men. That's what the word means. And obviously, I think it would be obvious to most people that just getting into bed with another man is not a problem. It is what the men do in bed together that sexually that is the problem, the way Leviticus puts it. When a man sleeps with a... Uh, with, when a man... How does it put it now? Sleeps with a man the way he sleeps with a woman. Okay, so there is something unique about a man sleeping with a woman. Now, a man sleeping with a woman, what's unique about that? It isn't just sleeping next to somebody. It's sleeping with a woman implies the sexual relationship. And when a man sleeps with a man the way he sleeps with a woman, that's an abomination according to Leviticus. Now, regarding, well, we don't keep the laws of Leviticus. Um, do we sacrifice children to idols anymore? Well, that's in the verse right next to this verse about homosexuality. Do we have sex with animals? Is that okay now because we don't keep the law? No, sin is still sin. And this particular behavior, along with those other two that I just mentioned, are egregious sins, obviously, because of the nature of the behavior and those sins are not restricted to the Old Testament law because they are repeated in the New Testament. Indeed, when Paul invents this word, arsinokoites, he's using the Greek words from the Greek translation of that exact Leviticus passage to refer to the sex that Leviticus is referring to that is condemnable. It doesn't matter whether you call it homosexuality or runky-dunky-punky. It matters what the word is referring to, because the condemn, biblical condemnation of homosexual behavior didn't show up in the Bible in the early 20th century. It was there from the Mosaic Law all the way through. I mean, think about it. If, 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 murder, if murder is wrong, and one way of murdering is plunging a knife into the heart uh, of somebody else, and then in the New Testament to explain why that's wrong, one of the writers made up the word knife-heart plunging to describe a particular kind of murder. Would it matter that this word was invented by the writer? No, it doesn't matter. It matters what's described there. What is described with the word that's invented by the writer is clearly something prohibited in Scripture. That's all that matters. You can call it all kinds of things. And this brings me to another point. This claim, and we've covered this before, but it just needs to be gone over because so many people get distracted by this. This claim that um, Paul condemns homosexuality uh, because he didn't understand it's the culture at the time, and uh, now he doesn't understand our culture is different, so the prohibition doesn't apply. Um, stuck in the culture of his time is the way it's put here. Uh, let's see. 
It's just mostly applied to cult prostitutes in pagan temples. That would be the New Testament characterization. Or in Leviticus, as pointed out here, it's condemned pederasty. Do you realize there's not a single reference of any kind in any of those passages to that circumstance? The passage doesn't say if men bed with boys the way they bed with women. It says if men bed with men, and both of them are guilty, by the way. It is the behavior that is condemned, not the kind of relationship. That is crystal clear in the passage. And in the Romans passage, it is the behavior that men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Both are guilty. No reference to pagan prostitution, no reference to pederasty, no reference to unloving, abusive relationships. It's the behavior that is condemned, just like adultery. Oh, Paul doesn't understand adultery. Adultery back then was committed by with prostitutes. Now we have, in our church, we have people committing adultery because they, they love each other deeply. So this is a different circumstance. Well, obviously this is nonsense. Although, you know, whenever I, uh, what's my word here, you know, when you, I can't think of this word, whenever you kind of think of a bizarre example, to show how silly this is, the bizarre example becomes reality. Maybe people will be saying, you know, in, in, in a few short years, what, adultery? These are loving relationships. The Bible condemns prostitution, not loving relationships. Nonsense! It, it condemns the behavior itself, regardless of the context of the behavior. This is true in every single passage that speaks to this issue. All of this other stuff about the culture is a complete invention. It is unrelated to the passages and the wording of the passages. What this is, is a sop to people who want to find a, a, a reason to ignore what Paul says. And of course, the other part of this, then, is this dismissing of Paul. Who's this guy, Paul? Well, uh, Paul is somebody who was appeared to by Jesus. Paul, and by the way, that is a, one of the questions that follows. Where does Paul get his authority? Okay, but in general is one of the things the questioner asks here. I want more detail on that. Uh, there are centuries of church history and tradition. He is in the canon. Uh, those of his time who saw and heard Jesus certainly accepted his authority. I think James and Peter imply or state his letters are Scripture. That would be Peter. But there is the objection that may not have that that uh, they may not have seen all of his letters when they wrote their books. I, 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 look at there's this passage that says you should not take someone to be a prophet or an authority on his own word. Okay, Paul does not seem self-proclaimed, um, and much of what we base our faith on is based on the works of Paul. I'm paraphrasing here a little bit for time. Um, so maybe there's something to this argument, but th the responses that were just given are completely adequate. Paul says in Galatians, and this is the first book that he wrote, and this is early in his ministry, that he took the message he received directly from Jesus because he got a, an appearance of Jesus, 
that transformed his life from being a persecutor and murderer of Christians to being someone who is murdered for being a Christian. And also instructed by Jesus himself, according to what Paul says in Galatians. And then he takes this message to the pillars, Peter, James, and John, to see if he might have been running in vain. And he got the the high five from all of them. You're one of us, brother. And as the writer here mentions, even Peter identifies Paul's writings as Scripture. People distort Paul's writing as they do the rest of Scripture, Peter says in Second Peter. So, and every and the early church all acknowledge this, and these were, by the way, disciples of the disciples. So you have, what is it, Irenaeus is a disciple of John, and then you have Polycarp, a disciple of Irenaeus, and all of these people are fully committed to Pauline theology, because the information they got from those people who walked with Jesus and who are ordained by Jesus um, uh, entailed the notion that Paul himself was equally apostolic and authoritative in his writings. There's no reason to doubt that. And by the way, this if a letter was clearly Pauline, there was no question in the early church that the letter was divinely authorized. And clearly apostolic with James and Peter and John as well, but uh, the Paul stood head and shoulders above the rest, partly because he wrote so many letters, 13, I think, and because his authority was recognized by all. Even Peter took rebuke from Paul because he was being hypocritical. So we have no reason to doubt that Paul was some kind of interloper making up his own theology, and setting himself up as an authority. Okay? But even if even if we set Paul's writings aside, we still have Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. They said Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Yes, he did, implicitly. And by the way, and I deal with this in a number of places, we don't know that he never said anything about it, because we don't have everything that Jesus said. One. Two, Jesus was a Torah-observant Jew. We know that from his life. Therefore, everything the Torah condemns as sin, Jesus would have condemned as sin. Three, when he had a chance to speak out regarding divorce, Matthew 19, he gave a very straightforward and simple formula. He said, and he did it on the basis of the creation order. So he went back to the very beginning. Have you not read, is the way he starts his response, that he who created them created them male and female. So he starts in his response about marriage, not in Genesis 2, where marriage is exemplified between Adam and Eve, but in Genesis 1, in the creation order. Male and female, he made them. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Okay, male and female is related to be fruit, being fruitful and multiplying. According to God's Word, then, 
one's gender and sexuality was tied to multiplication. Having children, you can't do that in same-sex unions. So implicitly already, Jesus is, just by citing the Genesis 1 binary sexuality and the command to be fruitful and multiply, is he setting up normative boundaries regarding sexuality. And then marriage comes more explicitly in the second chapter, and Jesus is citing that. And here is his formula. So this is simple. Jesus' formula is one man with one woman. Okay, notice that binary sexuality is assumed here. Becoming one flesh. What's that? Ask your parents. It's sex. He's talking about the bodies joining together, and that's what happens, what needs to happen for there to be children fulfilling the command to be fruitful and multiply. No duh, right? Okay, but I'm sorry i got to spell this out, but how, how is it that people miss this? One man with one woman becoming, becoming one flesh, which incidentally rules out homosexuality, which rules out same-sex marriage, which rules out fornication, which rules out adultery, which rules out bestiality. In other words, every single thing that is condemned sexually by the Bible is is entailed as a, a condemnation, so to speak, in this formula. One man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. Oh, now we got it. Now we got the answer to the question that was being asked in Matthew 19 about what about divorce for one lifetime. What man has, what God has joined together, let no man separate, is the way Jesus ends. But notice that the one lifetime part comes after the foundation is reaffirmed and built. This is what marriage is. Jesus said enough for us to know then that homosexuality was not part of God's plan. And if you go outside of one man with one woman, becoming one flesh for one lifetime, then you're outside of the plan of God. You know what that's called? That's called sin. You go outside the plan of God? You act contrary to God's purposes? You're, you're doing wrong before God. You're sin, sinning. You're culpable. Again, just saying. No, duh. Why is this so hard? But we have people that, frankly, I think, and this is a judgment, they care more about what the world thinks about them than what Jesus thinks about them. And they come up with these vapid, vacuous justifications for going with the crowd, for wishing to please the crowd, which is a description of Pilate in Mark 15, 15. Paul got his authority the same place everybody else in the New Testament got their authority from Jesus himself, all the apostolic authority, from Jesus himself. Witness to the resurrection trained by Jesus, affirmed by the other pillars. Writings considered Scripture by the other pillars. Show deference to by the other pillars. Acknowledged by the growing church in multiple generations as an authority speaking for God, such that his uh, the authenticity 
of any document as Pauline marks it as canonical. So we have plenty of reason to think that Paul is speaking with authority. And if you want to leave Paul out, you still got Moses and you still got Jesus. All right. Uh, and now we have one other issue here that's brought up that's tangential. It's, it's somewhat connected, but it's a little bit tangential. How do we distinguish the moral law from the ceremonial law? It's confusing to me that there does not seem to be in the Bible a clear indication about what is moral and what is ceremonial. So my friends have a point when they say I'm picking and choosing when I say homosexuality is wrong or where I'm wearing a mixed cotton poly blend suit, which that kind of thing is also prohibited in Scripture. Now, um, uh, let's see, uh, I'm just reading through this. All right, so um, this is easy to answer. First of all, the entire law was moral. And what I mean by that, every aspect of the law was morally incumbent on everyone that the law was given to. Now, who was that law given to? It was given to Jews. Every law was morally obligatory for those to whom the law was given. They had no more freedom to violate the Ten Commandments, I'm sorry, the ceremonial law, so, so, so-called, than they did the Ten Commandments. Okay, they are morally obliged to do them all. Now, they do seem to fall in different categories in some sense, but they're not in different moral categories. And I think it is helpful to talk about the, the so-called moral law, the so-called ceremonial law, and the so-called civil law, because remember, the Mosaic Covenant, the contract God made with the Jews, not with the Gentiles, but with the Jews, was to form the, the theocracy, the government of Israel. All right? And whenever you form a government, you have to have some things in place. And you have to have a structure for government. You have to have uh, particular laws that fit into the structure. You have to have ways of adjudicating those laws. You also need to have a country, a land, if you're going to have a, a, a nation. And so all of these are involved, too, with the giving of the land. Um, n- another issue, though, but notice that when it comes to the law given to the Jews, I keep underscoring this because there's an important reason, everything is morally obligatory, even though there are different kinds of categories of moral obligations. Ten Commandments may be strictly moral. Then you have ceremonial thing that they were supposed to do, but was part of the so-called cult of worship. And then you have civic things that they were supposed to do, but it was for forming the government. It's like a constitution of sorts. Now, there's also a means of taxation that was called tithing or tenthing, although the taxation on Israel was actually more than 10%, according to John MacArthur. But in any event, that what we have here is a contract God made following a certain form. In the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of that law follows this form very clearly, a, a, a great suzerain vassal treaty form. So you have a great king, and you have his vassal states, and they're following this thing because the king has done something good for the vassal states, and so now they're supposed to do things for the king, pay taxes, be conscripted in his army, do what he tells them to do. And so this is the pattern we see in Deuteronomy for the law, which was made for the Jews. So in one sense, there is nothing, and 
and this is going to sound surprising to some of you, but hear me out because it's qualified. There is nothing that is in the Mosaic Law. Let me back up. Everything that is in the Mosaic Law is obligatory morally on everyone for whom the law applies, and it is not obligatory for being in the Mosaic Law for anyone that the law does not apply to, which would be any Gentile or anyone after the period when the law, Mosaic Law, was no longer in effect to do what God intended it to do. And in Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah prophesies a new covenant, not like the old one which you broke, the one that Moses gave you when you at Sinai. Okay. And in Ephesians 2, there's a very clear statement that in the new covenant, in the church, now the dividing wall between the Gentiles and the Jews have been torn down, the dividing wall which was the law and its commandments. So there the law was never in the Mosaic law was never intended for Gentiles. It was tended it was a contract with a certain people. And it was it has been abrogated now since the new covenant has taken over. So we don't function according to that system anymore. Now I, I want to make an, a parallel here because this is the best way I know to uh to describe it. I live in the state of California. I grew up in the state of Illinois. When I left Illinois, I, didn't, I was no longer a resident or a, a even inside the state of Illinois. I'm in California now. And therefore, when I'm in California, there is not a single law passed by the Illinois legislature at any point in time that has any bearing on me at all. I am completely separated from those obligations. And, and therefore, I am not under the homicide laws of the state of Illinois, or the traffic laws, or any of the incidental laws that you find in any communities in the state of Illinois while I am in California. Does that mean I can still kill, now I can kill people? No, because the state of California has laws against that. So every state has its unique parochial laws for its own community that other states don't necessarily copy. But there are also laws that reflect universal moral obligations that ought to be in place for every governing authority. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't lie under oath etc., 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 because these are transcendent moral obligations. So w- when we look in the Old Testament, we-, we can eat shrimp. We can have a suit that has mixed threads or whatever. That's not a big deal. We're not obliged to keep anything that's in the Old Testament, because one, we're Gentiles, for those of us who are, two, even if we weren't Gentiles, that system is behind us. But sin is still sin. Immorality is still immorality. And when I'm speaking of sin and immorality here, I'm talking about transcendent issues. Even though the law is no longer uh, applicable to anybody in the way it was before, it doesn't mean that bestiality is fine with God. It doesn't mean that child sacrifice is fine with God, or rape, or kidnapping, or 
fornication or adultery or homosexuality is fine with God. Those are transcendent moral harms. They show up in the Mosaic Law because they show up in the New Testament where the law is not a factor, because they are a morality that transcends the parochial requirements of culture. So that's why it does the, the, the answer, picking and choosing. We're not picking and choosing. The simplest way to say it is, there is nothing in the Old Testament law that we are obliged to keep now in virtue of being in the Old Testament law. But there are some things in the law that identify serious transcendent sin, and usually you could figure that out just by paying attention to it. Or you could look at the New Testament and see if it's repeated in the New Testament when people are not under the law. That's another signal that it's transcendent. And the transcendent issues still apply to us. It's so an- annoying to me. Well, we don't eat shrimp. I'm sorry. Well, we do eat shrimp. It's okay to eat shrimp. <laughs> sorry. So, therefore, homosexuality is okay. So, therefore, bestiality is okay. So, therefore, sacrificing your children to Molech is okay. So, therefore, idolatry is okay. They don't say that. But that would be the logical application of the argument they're making. Why don't they say that? Because they know these things. That would be ridiculous. And it ain't a trend right now to sacrifice kids to Molech. It isn't politically correct to be a rank idolater, at least in quasi-Christian circles. Okay? So it's not on the table. Oh, but homosexuality, that's different. So now we're going to make these lame excuses to disqualify the prohibitions that we find in Leviticus, for example. Oh, and then we're going to disqualify it when we find it in Romans, because that's Paul, and who the heck is he? In any way, they didn't even apply to the circumstances we're facing today. Really? The behaviors are condemned, not the nature of the relationship the behaviors happen in. No, duh. Just saying. Okay? So I think I've covered the basis here in this letter. I want to thank the writer. Um, just out of privacy, I won't use his name or any of the other personal details, but I appreciate the questions. I appreciate um, the uh, the steadfast willingness to do what's right in his own behavior in spite of his own inclinations or desires, and also to hold fast to the Scripture. Those are all good qualities, and I'm showcasing them by talking about this. Uh, this letter and its contents. All right, let's take a break, and we'll get back to your, we'll get to your open mic calls. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. 
Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, friends, Greg Kokel here, giving you a piece of my mind here on Stand the Reason, usually on Tuesdays from 4 until 6 p.m. Uh, now we're doing a kind of off-schedule off show using open mic calls. So let's go to Robert Unger for the first call. Hi, Greg. My name is Robert, calling from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Thanks mm-hmm. for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Greg, I read your Solid Ground entitled The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus a couple days ago. Fantastic piece, by the way. However, as I read it, I wondered if it wasn't in a fashion an argument from silence. As I'm writing this, I find myself considering the words from just a matter of days ago from MSNBC host Joe Scarborough. He claims he knows the gospel and Jesus never addresses abortion and therefore pro-life or anti-abortion, as he characterizes it, is a modern hyper-Christian position not held by Christ himself. He even posits that it's heretical. But the Bible, apart from Jesus' words, has a lot to say about human dignity and the image of God, just as it has a lot to say about how we ought to treat others. I'm thinking specifically about the verses and context surrounding Micah 6.8 and James 1.27. I understand why these particular verses were absent from your analysis, but do they not also inform us on the subject matter? I wonder if you could take a moment and help us square the principles found in these verses with your hypothesis concerning Christ's view on how we should champion the cause of marginalized groups. Thanks. Well, this is a great, great uh, question, and uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the piece that Robert is referring to, uh, it's called The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus, and it was written uh, last year towards the end, about a, about a year ago, I think is when it came out, and uh, maybe maybe no, uh, November? Yeah, November, I think, last year. Uh, last year would be, no, maybe two years ago now. Anyway, November 21, let's put it that way, okay? But uh, it should be easy to find on the website. And what what I argue there is that this common characterization of Jesus as some kind of social justice warrior, 
about the person who came to to contend for and argue for and and make the case for the rights of the marginalized and um, and the outcast uh, and the poor. Uh, this has become a trope. All right. In other words, it's it's repeated so often. People take it as fact, and um, and 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 even people who ought to know better, people who don't um, diminish Jesus to simply that category, um, still will say, "But he he came for that, but no, not only for that." All right. So what I did in this piece, and this is a practice that I that I do a lot when I want to make sure I do a deep dive biblically onto an issue, is I went through, and since the question is Jesus and his purpose, I went through every gospel and every word of every gospel to isolate every single reference to, one, the poor, two, um, the, uh, the, 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 the purpose of Jesus, and three, the, his, his campaigning on behalf of the poor and the outcast per se, all right? And when I say poor, I'm talking about the financially destitute, not the spiritually poor, all right? And when uh, the Scripture, when, when people might bring up those who are oppressed, we are talking about culturally oppressed, the way we think of it now, not oppressed by the devil, for example, which would be a biblical notion. Um, so I went through every single verse, and frankly, I was stunned at what I found. I had a pretty good idea what the trend was, but I was stunned to find out that Jesus never campaigned on behalf of the financially poor a single time. You look up every single reference. Now, by the way, the prophets speak of that and injustice done to the poor, and I think their point was not that being poor is an injustice, that's a Marxist notion, but that the poor were especially vulnerable to being abused, and this is what the prophets spoke against. And they also spoke in favor of charity, which means that um, the needs of the poor should be addressed not as a function of justice, but as a function of kindness and goodness what we normally would call charity. But in the case of Jesus, so we are just, we're not talking about the Bible, we're talking about Jesus. Jesus never campaigned on that. Now, is that an argument of silence? Uh, A kind of argument from silence. Um, But what you can't, but but here's how this one works. And, And the time when arguments from silence are not illicit is when the silence is deafening, okay? People are claiming this is what Jesus came to do. That's the claim. But if there is no specific place where we can see Jesus doing that, how do we sustain the claim that he came to do it? Then I look for all these, whatever places that Jesus contended for the outcast as such, for the oppressed the culturally oppressed as such, for the marginalized as such, that is, as marginalized people, there was not a single verse. None. Now, is that an argument from silence? 
after a fashion, but in this case, the silence is deafening, especially when people came claim that this is what Jesus came to do, to argue for these groups and contend for these groups. Well, if you think he came to do that, can you show me where he did that? And if you can't show me where he did that, then why would you claim that that's what he came to do? And by the way, this is why this is not an argument, a, a, a fallacious argument from silence. They're making a claim about Jesus, which is not substantiated in any biographical information about Jesus, so the claim cannot be sustained. That's all I'm saying. Maybe Jesus said all of these things, but we never hear about that. Not in the Gospels. We do hear a lot in the Gospels about why Jesus came. And we hear it not only from Jesus' lips, and also from some of the apostles. I'm not sure if I included any of the apostolic letters in my analysis. I think I stuck only to the Gospels. But it was also on the lips of many people who were authoritatively describing Jesus, and you find this principally in the birth narratives. So you find this in the prophecy by Zacharias, John the Baptist's son. You find this in Jesus, um, rather Mary's comments in the Magnificat. You find this in the um, statements of the angels. You find this when Jesus is circumcised, and you have um, prophecies over him uh, by uh, Simeon and um, the other gal who is prophesying in church and makes a comment about Jesus. Can't remember her name. All of these statements give you a very, very unified, clear, singular, unequivocal picture of why Jesus came. And none of those people reflect anything associated with the so-called social justice cause. It's just not there. And it also turns out that the profile that we get from all of those people speaking of what Jesus would be and do turns out to be the very same thing, fits hand in glove with what Jesus said himself that he came to do. And it wasn't what's called social justice. Okay? So this is, this is not an argument from silence in any way that's illicit. I am working with the text, and I am affirming what the text affirms about Jesus, and I am refusing to believe the claims of Jesus' purpose that the text never asserts. Very straightforward. Now, with regards to Joe Scarborough and the idea that Jesus did not say anything against abortion, um, Joe, Jesus said nothing about wife-beating or gay bashing, or child sacrifice, or slavery. Are we to presume that he not only had no opinion about this, but actually approved of it? This is, I, I don't care how much Joe Scarborough or anybody else who makes this kind of claim says they've read the Bible or the New Testament. This line of thinking is nonsense for the reasons I just gave. I'm not just disparaging it because I don't like it and I don't agree with it. That line of thinking, if Jesus never condemned it, it must be okay, falls flat on its face when you think of all the other clearly not okay things that Jesus never condemned. 
that it seems quite obvious he would have condemned as a Torah-observant Jew and as a virtuous human being, which we know him to be. Okay. And also, Joe, um, gee, why don't you read the birth narratives? Because that, among all texts, are read frequently, especially around Christmas time. Because in the birth narratives, you have John the Baptist leaping with joy in his mother's womb, called a child, feeling joy, filled with the Holy Spirit in the second trimester. What do you make of that, Joe? That's New Testament. Why is John reacting that way? Because he is in the presence of the Lord. How do I know that? Because that's what Elizabeth said. How is it to Mary that the mother of my Lord would come and see me? Because the moment I heard the sound of your voice, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Okay, that's Mary. This is the first thing Mary does after she gets, the, at least in the record, after she gets the message from the angel that she's going to bear the Messiah, the Son of God, the Davidic King, the one who will save his people from their sins. Where is he? He's inside of Mary. First trimester, embryo, the Lord. Such that, and this is not a tough passage to follow. There's not heavy theology here. It's not a lot of philosophical speculation. Just read the words, Joe, and anyone else. It is absolutely clear in the Gospels that the record considers John the Baptist prenatal to be John, and Jesus prenatal to be Jesus, the Lord. So that if Elizabeth had an abortion, or Mary had an abortion, they wouldn't have aborted a mere zygote or fetus. They wouldn't have aborted a potential person or a future person. They would have killed John and Jesus. And taking an innocent human life is bad. <laughs> it's a sin. It's a breaking of a commandment, Joe. So, from God's perspective, just using the New Testament birth narratives without being clever, just reading them, it's obvious that abortion is murder, the violation of what? The Sixth Commandment. This is not tricky, friends. So, uh, the, the, the point that Jesus never said anything about that, well, that's been made before, not just about abortion. It's just a silly argument. It's just plain old silly. And when I argue against abortion, as you've seen, I, I certainly, characteristically, we argue philosophically, ethically, and scientifically. But I'm certainly capable of arguing biblically with a very straightforward, very tight, unambiguous, unequivocal, biblical argument from the birth narratives in the Gospels that the unborn are themselves the same ones that they 
will be when they're born. <laughs> and if you kill them after they're born, and that's murder, and they are the same selves inside of the womb as they are outside of the womb, from God's perspective, then it is the, the same kind of crime has just been committed. This is not rocket science. This is pretty straightforward. So I, I hope that, uh, for Bob, I hope that clears up, you know, some of the confusion there. Um, and I'm glad to answer the question. Um, and and I hope a lot of this is sinking in for many of you. These kinds of challenges from the culture, from people who think they know the Bible. I mean, I don't know anything about Joe Scarborough. You know, he says he reads the Bible, what he knows the Bible. Well, obviously he doesn't know the birth narratives on this issue or the implications of them. This is not hard. All right, basic stuff. And most problems can be solved with basic stuff if you just are reflective and you use common sense, all right? Let the words speak for themselves. All right, that's it for the show, friends. Greg Kokel here for Standard Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye.